If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the November 23rd, 2020 Thanksgiving Week edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. With a pandemic on the rise, Turkey Day around a table full of friends and relatives is as unlikely as a grinder match with even a lesser Hemsworth, leaving many of us alone with our four-legged best friend. It is amazing how much love and laughter they bring into our lives, and even how much closer we become with each other because of them. So on this show, we revisit two visits with furry friends and the cornucopia of blessings from Renaissance queer queen, Amber Flame. But let's kick off with the dog poetry of Mark Doty. Jimmy and Tony can't keep Dino, their cocker spaniel. Tony's too sick. The daily walks more pressure than pleasure. One more obligation that can't be met. And though we already have a dog, Wally wants to adopt. Wants something small and golden to sleep next to him and lick his face. He's paralyzed from the waist down, whatever's ruining him moving upward, and we don't know how much longer he'll be able to pet a dog. How many men want another attachment, just as they're leaving the world? Wally sits up nights and says, I'd like some lizards, a talking bird, some fish, a little rat. So after I drive to Jimmy and Tony's in the village, and they meet me at the door and say, we can't go through with it, we can't give up our dog, I drive to the shelter just to look, and there is Bo, bounding and practically boundless, one brass concatenation of tongue and tail, unmediated energy, too big, wild, perfect. He not only licks Wally's face, but bathes every irreplaceable inch of his head. And though Wally can no longer feed himself, he can lift his hand and bring it to rest on the rough gilt flanks when they are, for a moment, still. I have never seen a touch so deliberate. It isn't about grasping. The hand itself seems almost blurred now, softened, though tentative only because so much will must be summoned, such attention brought to the work, which is all he is now, this gesture toward the restless splendor, the unruly, the golden, the animal, the new. 
One of our other favorite poets is Amber Flame. Coming out of the Oakland Poetry Slam scene, I want a bursting so ready. I come out my skin. I want to be desired down to the pit to end hangy fibered between her teeth sucked in sweet satisfaction. When she says she loves, no, really, really, really loves plums, I want her to mean me. And maybe that plum knew I needed three days to truly understand the mess I am willing to make to be consumed. Flame's work explores spirituality and sexuality, cross-woven with themes of grief and loss, motherhood and magic, and interstitial joy. How do you identify within the LGBTQI plus community? I identify as a queer woman. I use lesbian sparingly. Queer fits the best, I think. Why are you an artist, a creative? It saved my life. It saved my sanity. It saved my sense of being. I found myself through words. My family is about words. My mother had a doctor in philosophy of language, so we literally grew up questioning how words work between two people and what it means to say something and be understood by somebody else. Then I started working and teaching. I've done a writing workshop with incarcerated women for over 12 years now. There is healing power in sharing stories. Giving yourself permission to hear and witness other people's stories gives yourself permission to see yourself within other people's stories. And that's where compassion begins, knowing that you're not alone. Tell me about that first day for incarcerated women using the power of poetry to help them express themselves. There's a police officer in Seattle, Washington named Kim Boguki, who went in and asked this really kind of random question. If there was something someone could have said or done to change the path that led you to prison, what would it have been? And one of the women at Washington Correction Center for Women in Gig Harbor prayed on this question and asked the women around her to start writing their answers and handed the stack of answers to Kim. We got introduced through a mutual friend. She was looking for a writing workshop facilitator to go in and help these women kind of go deeper because she knew there was something there. I built a workshop based around their initial answers to help them go deeper into the questions. It's been life-changing. Over 3,000 answers. We did youth workshops. We've gone to California women's prisons, to men's prisons in Alabama, all over the world, really. There's a documentary about it. Incarceration is such a drastic and horrific thing and has such horrible impacts on the individual. The juxtaposition of that and the healing process through storytelling being witnessed is clear, even more clear. It's unavoidably explicit. So many of them, the first thing they say is, nobody's ever asked me something like that before. We're not asking about the crime. We're not asking about what you did. We're not asking what you want to do even in the future yet. We come back around to that after saying, where could somebody have intervened? And that just elucidates how much we have responsibility to our fellow humans, how much trauma and damage we cause each other on a daily basis through our own hurts and our own insecurities and our own lack of healing. So what happens if we all commit to self-healing so that we can commit to mutual community, worldwide healing? Every time somebody is angry or mean, it's very clear to me that there's just so much hurt under it. You can't ignore that. You can't ignore humanity if somebody shares a story like that. As a queer Black woman, how do you see where we are in terms of progress? I think we have a long way to go. I go back to the hope that I have. I have so much more hope for the youth. They're such light bringers. And, you know, I have two sort of stepdaughters that are now 21 and 22. There's this freedom that youth are allowing themselves and not just allowing, but expecting. They're not struggling with the same things that even my generation is struggling with. Is that okay? Is that right? Is that wrong? There's a looseness coming there. But we have a lot of really hard hurt people that have chosen to be awful. And they're often moneyed, white men in power. I think about karma a lot. I think our nation has a karmic past 
that it would like to forget about and we're not going to be allowed to forget. We're living in a time that is going to end up in the history books. What the pandemic has brought about is an acute attention on the issues you cannot ignore them because you have nothing else to do. We saw that in the protests this summer. I call it the summer of killings because there's been a summer of killings for about 10 years now. And what that means to me is not that there's suddenly black people dying in the streets at the hands of police, but there's suddenly a black person dying at the hands of police in the streets that gets the attention of everybody. This is happening year round for us, but every summer there's one that just gets everybody's attention. And it starts this whole thing of like, I can't believe. And, and now it's to the point where people can't say they can't believe. Now they can believe it because it happens over and over again. And so now they have to decide whether they're going to do something about it or they're not. And if you sit complacent, you can't call yourself a good person. And people are really struggling with that identity too. What does it mean to be a good person? Can you be a good passive person? And I don't believe you can. And I think that that pressure point is super necessary and super painful. Change is not easy. Giving up privilege, giving up any kind of sense of security, especially if you grew up not having any and you kind of claimed a corner of your own. It's hard to say, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice this for the greater good. We see it with masks. The people who are staying home and masking up and acting with such care around COVID, there's a growing resentment for all the people who are not. We have a really hard time choosing for the greater good as individuals, and we're encouraged to be individualistic. And all of this leads to a really toxic stew that shouldn't surprise anybody because really it's a sediment of slavery, of the indigenous slaughter, of the becoming white that happened. You know, you talk about when the Irish and the Greek and the Italians started immigrating, and they were not white people <laughs> when they first came here to the United States. They were not claiming of power. And this assumption of power and how to get closer to it has given us this real thick residue at the bottom of our melting pot, our mixing pot, whatever you want to call it. And now it's all stirred up and it's murky and it's dark and it feels hopeless, but sometimes you got to boil the toxins out. There's a sense that moving away from blackness is how to succeed. And that's all over the world. Many, many of my friends are talking about, do we get out of this country? Where do we go? Where can we be safe? Where can our families be safe? And it's brought up this really in-depth look at, ultimately, it is unsafe to be Black in this world. And the darker you are, the more unsafe your body is everywhere. Places where there's so many brown people, you're surrounded by brown people, the leaders are brown, the teachers are brown. Those are safer places. You're not going to be targeted simply based on the brownness of your skin. You saw it when COVID hit, but in China, they were forcing out African immigrants. In France, they forced out African immigrants. There's not a place to be safe and Black in this world that doesn't need deeper examination and healing work. When somebody sees a Black Lives Matter sign or somebody says Black Lives Matter, if somebody were to come up to you and go, White Lives Matter too, Amber Flame, how do you respond to that? I can't even fathom, I would say. Everything in our society has validated that statement that white lives matter. The reason why we cry black lives matter is because it's too easy to forget how often they don't. You are not at risk. If nobody ever says white lives matter, white lives do not face any kind of increased danger. However, black lives, whether we cry black lives matter or not, are constantly being endangered. I'm just trying to get free. I'm just trying to raise my daughter to be free in herself. There's a lot of fear of the closed door of my own house isn't a safe place. We need empathy now more than ever. We need to forge connections now more than ever. What can you do to make those things happen? I foster kindness. I practice consideration. I create not just to express myself, but in a way that is purposefully, intentionally meant to be accessible to others so that they can find themselves in the story. 
What are the positive aspects of being a church kid that help give you strength? People who have true faith have true hope, and it doesn't have to be in God. You know, the greatest humanitarians are ones who have true faith that ultimately human beings want to be good. I'm pretty pessimistic. So I think going back to the rule of love thy neighbor as thyself, honor your mother and father, don't cheat, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder. Those are social agreements. And that's the best thing that comes from the church is the sense of social agreement. We're all agreeing to some basic principles here that help alleviate the greed, the fear that comes from trying to survive in a capitalist society. What do you think about the expanding letter spectrum that we have going within our community? What does that mean to you? I think it's people really trying to find themselves and identify with a group where they feel like they belong. And I love the idea that it's so expansive and so inclusive that it's no longer necessary. My best friend talks about queer culture being something that could be could be like half lesbian on your mom's side kind of thing, where it's sort of this culture that's beyond sexuality. It's about like how you see yourself. If I say I'm black and I'm queer, then that denotes something very specific about my culture and not necessarily about who I love. The youngins have it. They're not struggling here. (laughs) They're just like, why can't we just be ourselves? My mother was a single mother and my sisters are half Mexican, half white, and I'm half black, half white, technically. And I grew up as the black person in my family, but I was also light-skinned, had a white family, so people didn't necessarily allow me labels. People were like, yes, you're kind of black, or you're kind of, you know, you're also white. As a black woman, we often don't read as queer. And then I had a child. Once you have a child and you're a black woman, you have to reclaim queerness almost every time. It's interesting because I went labelless for so long. I'm so unattached to the labels of for myself. They don't they don't have to mean how things go. Somebody can take it away from me at any time and I'm like, okay, if I'm not what you want to call queer or if I'm not black enough or if I'm not this enough or that enough, then that seems like a you problem. For me, I'm continuing to be Amber Flame. It turns out that people actually do want to find who they belong with and that's what that is all about that sort of seeking for who do I attach to who's my community who's my family and my family is very broad because I can see myself in relationship to so many other people she's also part of the last of the red hot mamas and the music group bitches gotta eat change's gonna come uh-huh change's gonna come one day one of these days and it won't be long change's gonna come one day Change is gonna come, ah uh-huh, ha uh-huh. Change is gonna come one day. One of these days, and it won't be long. Change is gonna come one day. Mild heart done had enough. Loving you's been way too tough. Knew all along that you didn't care. Ain't no need for me to be here. It ain't no use. Oh yeah. Taking this abuse. Oh yeah. You never The documentary Amber mentioned is called The If Project and can be rented on Vimeo. Links to more of her poetry and music can be found at theamberflame.com. And now, another dog poem from Mark Doty.
This poem is set in the animal shelter in Brewster, Massachusetts, near where I live in Provincetown. They shove and tumble around us on the concrete floor, the little ones, just as they must have crowded around the gates of this world, eager to live. So much to be licked on earth. What work. All mouth, sure of their reception, they've hurried to a realm they know will feed them and they open their new faces to us, tongues and teeth apprehending our sweetness and pity, smells and salts. This is here, the minds register. Yes, and this, and this is good. The older ones, each in their separate pens, consider what's to be made of betrayal. This one's serenely still, waiting for us to make the first gesture. This all-evident eagerness muzzle against the grid. The one who's been here longest cries, though not to us. And that one, unclaimed, blank placard above her cage, simply sleeps in a far corner, unavailable. Rode under the Hellgate inscriptions, too big, no time, moving to another state. They've lost local habitations, and some of them, Names, though most carry forward a single word. Bosco, Laredo, Jack, all of the past they're allowed to keep in this vague limbo far from affections, locations, and routines. I know, leashed to no one, the plain daily habits gone. Who are we then? Nothing but eagerness or caution though only a little. Couldn't these various distances dissolve at a touch, a dozen touches? Not to be forgotten, the blank hours, but put in place. Oh, Dakota and Brandy and Jimbo, just as we wanted to be born once, don't we want to be delivered again, even knowing the nothing love may come to? Oh, Lucky and Buddy and Red, we put our tongues to the world. Don't go away. We'll be right back. It's time for Who Said That on this episode of the Rainbow Minute. This writer was born in 1911 in Mississippi. Once grown, he changed his first name to a southern state. While producing screenplays, novels, short stories, over a hundred poems, and an autobiography, he is best known as a playwright. His masterpieces revolutionized American theater, namely The Glass Menagerie, A Streetcar Named Desire, and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Often emotionally distraught, he found solace with his partner of 15 years, U.S. Navy veteran Frankie Merlo, who died from cancer in 1963. When he died, the playwright said, I went to pieces. I retreated into a shell. For nine months, I wouldn't speak to a soul. I wouldn't answer the telephone, and I wouldn't leave the house. Who said that? It was Tennessee Williams, among the greatest of American playwrights. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hello, I'm Billy Bean, Major League Baseball's Ambassador for Inclusion, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. Our next story is about a gay couple who have devoted their lives to providing solace for our four-legged friends. Ellen DeGeneres tweeted of them, What this couple has done for rescue dogs is incredible. 
If you're like me, you're going to want to support them. Abby Dees reports. When Danny Robertshaw and Ron Danta drove a horse trailer filled with emergency supplies from their South Carolina home to New Orleans right after Hurricane Katrina, they had no idea that the journey would change their lives too. The abandoned and lost dogs they encountered there came back home with them and became the first pups of now almost 11,000 that Danny and Ron have rescued and placed since that drive in 2005. They are the subject of a documentary by Ron Davis called Life in the Doghouse. And Danny and Ron are here with me today to talk about it. Welcome. Thank Thank you. you. I'm Ron Danta. I'm Danny Robertshaw. What spurred you to go down to New Orleans anyway? At first, we did a lot for people. We bought supplies and everything. And then about the third day after Katrina hit on the news, they started showing all the dogs on roofs, on floating boards, hung in trees, swimming. And that was really the catalyst that made us think we need to go help those animals. The part of the news that we failed to hear, or either it wasn't on, was the fact that none of the people who had to evacuate the city were allowed to take their pets with them. All we could do is think about how many there must be. And these poor animals that had known love and care And all that, we're never going to know their family again or their home again. That's what started the whole thought process. And uh, we were really hoping that we'd find all the owners and everything else somehow. But there were no records, no documents. All of the animals, when we brought them home, we had to start all over from scratch, from worming to bathing to all the shots and everything else so that we could place them somewhere safely. When we first started it, we kept bringing them in batches. So we'd get 20 to 30 dogs each time. And then we would get them spayed and neutered and try to get them in the best health we could. And we leaned on our horse community because we're horse trainers by trade to help adopt them because most horse people are animal lovers. They really stepped up to the plate. We took dogs all over to the horse shows and they just kept accepting them. And the funny thing is, I think once Katrina ended, with all of our friends, I think they were just like, oh, thank God, Danny and Ron are going to be carrying dogs and putting them in our arms at the horse shows. But little did they know that was the catalyst that started us to really form this rescue. So how many dogs do you have today? We currently have probably around 98 dogs total right now in our rescue. To date, we're over 11,500 adoptions. What's different about your rescue compared to most? Um, Number one, we don't have an adoption fee because we never wanted anyone to feel that they couldn't afford one of our dogs. And even for people with very little money, it's still important to have a pet if they want it for themselves or their children. And, uh, And if we have to, we'll help them out with vet bills and food and everything else if we deem it a good home. But secondly, I think in one of the most interesting facts is uh, we don't have a home anymore. We live with our friends, the dogs, in their home. And uh, we have a little bit of space to ourselves, but not much. One of the other things that's very unique about our rescue, when Danny and I rescue a dog, whether it's coming from the court cases, abuse cases, whether it's a dog hit on the road, when they come into our rescue, they become part of our family. And once we evaluate them, and if they are non-adoptable due to physical disabilities or due to behavioral problems, being scared, fear biters or whatever, they still have a safe haven because they will live their life out with us in the house. And our dogs don't live in concrete runs and kennels. We've all seen the pictures of the scared dogs. They're at the back of the kennel. They shake. Their teeth are rattling. They never come up to the people that are looking to adopt. So most of those dogs never get adopted because they're not friendly. They're not wagging their tails, greeting the people, saying, take me home, because they're petrified. And when we go to shelters, those are the dogs we pull. We feel living in our house is part of our family. That's the best way to rehabilitate them because we have a pack of dogs that are secure, which can help them. And then us, we have to be also pack leaders and teach them that life is okay. We can't blame puppies for being born when there's there's so much bad breeding and puppy mill breeding. 
and family breeding even, just these families that decide they want to have their little Susie or their little children uh, witness birth. We've decided there's a lot of videos out that can tell them that they don't really have to do it in their home. We keep track of every dog. We keep a microchip on it that has our name, and you're not allowed to change that. And so if it goes missing somewhere, we'll be the first ones called. And we can keep up with how many times it gets lost, and if necessary, we'll bring him back home. You're the goddads of about 11,000 dogs? <laughs> That's the gist. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about how this has affected your relationship? We had a strong relationship before this, but I really feel animals, all they do is give love. Danny and I both have become enriched in our lives because when you think of thousands of dogs living in our house and all wanting to be loved and giving love, we've benefited so much from that. And I think anytime a human is surrounded by love, we grow. Thanks to the dogs, both of us have grown. Mm. And so when you're going to horse shows, you're on the horse show circuit, you're also doing your rescue. You're bringing dogs to the horse shows, correct? Yeah, our bus comes to a lot of the horse shows and we set up there on the weekends. And we do so many adoptions through our horse community. We're full-time horse trainers and uh, we go to shows constantly. We travel constantly. That's how we make our living. We can't afford not to keep making a living at this time in our lives, for sure. We draw no salary from the rescue. All of our time is donated. Where do you get the energy to do all this? We don't have any energy. I think we feel tired a lot of the time because it's not a matter of you can just stop it right now. You know, it's not like reading a book and when you get to a certain point and you get a little sleepy about it, you can just shut it and pick it up again. We have to finish each day with what, what's before us and start each day with what's before us. We are fortunate to have great help at this point. This is Abby Dees, and I'm talking with Danny Robert Shaw and Ron Danta, founders of Danny and Ron's Rescue, and the subject of the new documentary, Life in the Doghouse. This documentary is much as being about the dogs. It's also your love story. One of the things that you mentioned is that this is taking up so much of your time. You are together every day, but you don't have a lot of time for your relationship. In our hearts, we still know we're there for each other. And sometimes our days are 18 hours long. Uh, when we're at home, we have to get up and feed all of the dogs, medicate all the dogs before we go to the barn at 8 o'clock in the morning. And then when we come home at the end of the day, we have to put them all to bed. So it's a lot of hours. And, you know, sometimes we are just so exhausted at the end of the day that there's not a lot of talk time. I mean, most of our talk time is driving in the car to a horse show. That's where we can grasp each other because we don't have 70 or 80 dogs around us to take care of. We sometimes feel like two ships in the dark passing. <laughs> and we don't realize that days have gone by before we've really felt an intimate moment. I mean, of just kind words sometimes. We see each other so much that he can look at me and tell exactly what I'm thinking and the same, same with him. In the midst of all this, you had a documentary film crew following your lives. <laughs> How did that come about? Ron Davis, who is the film director, came to our rescue because he was told through our horse community that if he's thinking of getting another dog, he needs to come and get one through us. And he picked out a dog, a little chihuahua. He was very excited with him. And right before he left, he just looked at Danny and I and he said, I just want to let you two know you will be my next documentary. So we laughed, shook hands, he left. And we just thought, you're being polite and blah, 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 and we'll never hear from him again. Well, he started calling and wanting us to go to dinner and kept whining and dining. And we kept saying, no, we really don't want to do this. We're not interesting enough. We just feed dogs. We take care of dogs. We get homes for dogs. That's it. So who wants to know about us? And he kept hounding us and hounding us, and we finally agreed to do it. And he followed us to the flood zones in Louisiana, horse shows, out in the wild trapping dogs. He followed us to the vets, every part of our life. And we couldn't figure out how he would create a story. I think it's very simple 
if you have the book Gone with the Wind to make a movie because you have the book and so then you just figure out how to put it on the screen. How do you feel about it now that you've seen the documentary? He really did a beautiful job making the film. I have learned that there's a whole lot that we do and a whole lot of time spent that no one else would know about without it. One thing that Ron Davis told us, though, which finally convinced us to do this, is that the proceeds from this will be going to animal shelters all over. The other part is that what we've learned from our lives in doing this rescue is that very few people are aware of what it's really like to be a dog and not to have a home. They don't know what puppy mills are. They don't know how the simplest thing can be abuse when they keep them in a crate all day long while they're at work, tie them to trees. They just don't understand how much needs to be known if you're going to be a pet owner. Give me some examples of the kinds of things you'd like people to know. Spay and neuter is the key to overpopulation. If we could get our government to have mandatory spay and neuter laws, allowing breeders a license to breed, you know, we have no problem if you want to go get a golden retriever, if that's your passion. But most good breeders, you have to sign your life away in blood. The contracts are strict. You can't breed the dog. You can't show the dog. They have to show the dog. So we have no problem with that. But our dream would be if we had mandatory spay neuter that Danny and Ron's Rescue would be put out of business and all the shelters in America would be put out of business. The other piece that's so important is people always think when they go to pet stores that they're saving that dog to get it out of that cage, but they don't realize that 99.9% .9 of all dogs in pet stores come from puppy mills. Puppy mills is a mass breeding grounds. They live in rabbit cages. They never touch their feet on the earth. They can be four layers tall and all of their feces and urine go on top of each other. So when you purchase a dog from that pet store, all you are doing is contributing to the wheel of the puppy mills. If the pet stores could never sell any dogs from the puppy mills, the puppy mills eventually are going to go out of business. You take all dogs. You don't cherry pick. You, in fact, seek out dogs that are, quote, unadoptable. What are the things that make a dog unadoptable? Sometimes we'll take a dog in and not really realize that it's almost blind or it is blind. That's something that we can help if it's a um, juvenile cataract. They can do surgery on that and give them sight again. But we have some that have taken two and three years before they are secure enough to leave us because they, they were so traumatized when they arrived that they just couldn't function like a dog, not like a pet. And people don't want to take a dog in that, that uh, is going to hide from them constantly and be scared of everybody that walks. So we really try hard to make sure that we know each animal. And then when people ask us what we have, if, we, if we're not showing it to them already, we can find out what they'd like to have in their dog. And if we think we have it, we're all about it. If we don't think we have it, we're not going to try to push another one on them. We want each dog to go to its real forever home again, and only once if possible. But if it's not working, we'll take it back. You're not allowed to give it away. It has to come back to us or either go through us to change hands. Most people, when you go to adopt a dog, they want a dog that has a lot of social skills. You know, very friendly, great with other dogs, great, you know, in a public atmosphere. And there's so many of these dogs that have had no socialization. And so those are the ones we gravitate to because by living in our house, we feel through our pack of dogs, number one, they, in nature, they live in packs. So they can learn a lot from the pack. And then just being in a house with humans to where they can't run to the back and hide. We can't stand the thought of a dog having had a home and then just being kicked out of it because they're too old are going to cost too much to keep. There's a lot of bad-mouthing about shelters because many of them do euthanize their animals or they are understaffed or underfunded. You are supportive of shelters. I really get quite angry, actually, to be very honest, when people bash shelters. Shelters are only doing the dirty work for the community. 
And people get on the bandwagon about, you know, the shelter kills dogs and cats. We live in a very small rural town, and they take in over 5,000 animals a year. Where are those animals going to go? Well, instead of bashing, go and take 30 minutes and go sit in the kennels and give each dog five minutes of love or go play with the cats. If there's one thing that you want people to take away from this film, what do you think it is? Educate yourself. Put your feet and your hands and your mind into the places that you normally don't go that you just hear about. People say, well, I can't go to a shelter. It just hurts me too much. Well, how much more hurt do you think you're causing by you not stepping up to the plate, you know, putting your big boy pants on and going? You have to reach to places that you haven't been in order to learn about it. You can't just read words and let them go by. But every once in a while, I just hope people will put themselves into the situation just to be stronger. My biggest thing I'd like people to take home from this film is spay and neuter. I preach it all the time, and it seems like such a simple words to say, but people just don't realize the millions of animals euthanized in shelters, and if we could spay and neuter, we would not have an overpopulation. This film is going to be in theaters this month, but it's on demand. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that works. Yeah, we're very excited about this. It's kind of a new concept, but it's so easy. If you go to the website or onto Facebook, and you can see Bring the Movie to a Theater Near Me, and you click on it and put your zip code in, and they will tell you all the theaters that they're in contact with in the area, and you can choose the theater, the date, the time. Depending on the size of the theater, they may tell you you have to get 30 tickets sold, and then it's guaranteed to come. Put it out on Facebook and get your friends to just go on the site and you will be able to purchase your tickets at regular movie prices. Then once that goal is met, they give you the green light and it is guaranteed to come there. So if you want info about the movie, lifeinthedoghousemovie.com is the website. And if they want information about you adopting dogs, learning more about what you do, dannyronsrescue.org. Is that it? Yes, that's it. Anything I've missed that you want to make sure people know? Open your heart up. And if you can't adopt a dog, go to a rescue, go to a shelter, and just spend some time giving your love. That's all they need. This is Abby Dees with IMRU Radio, and I've been talking with Danny Robertshaw and Ron Danta, founders of Danny and Ron's Rescue, and the subjects of the documentary by Ron Davis, Life in the Doghouse. The documentary, Life in the Doghouse, can be viewed on Netflix, Amazon, iTunes, or Google Play. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. It's time for Who Said That on this episode of the Rainbow Minute. This gay artist's career was off and running before getting his degree when his design was chosen to promote the 1969 film Hello, Dolly. He went on to create movie posters for over 40 films, including The Sting and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Beginning in 1972, he created 37 celebrity portraits for the cover of TV Guide, including those of Lucille Ball, Katherine Hepburn, and John Travolta. Inspired by gay illustrator J.C. Leyendecker, he once said... I'm interested in uncovering relationships between the past and in discovering how things have changed and grown. I don't see any point in copying the past, but I think the elements of the past can be taken to another realm. Who said that? It was master illustrator Richard Amsel. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hi, I'm Chaz Bono, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out loud and proud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Sometimes doing something is better than just hearing about it. 
What better Thanksgiving guest than a new dog or cat from your local animal shelter? Again, Abby Dees reports. Come here, my little baby. Come here. Did somebody take them out? You're a well-known filmmaker. You're a producer. You are very well-known as an activist. You've really dedicated your life to LGBT activism. So how is it that we are finding ourselves sitting right here in the East Valley shelter? Well, when the housing crisis, the banking crisis happened in 2008, on the news locally, we called it the foreclosure. So I was not involved at all with this kind of stuff. I was very active in the gay rights movement. And everyone had to give up their dogs. It was all over the news. And houses were foreclosed, and my friends that were real estate agents said they'd go to the house to repossess it, and the dogs would still be in the backyard. It was just a horrible crisis. So I thought, once we got gay marriage, I'm like, okay, what's next? So much needs to be done in the city of Los Angeles. There's so many problems, period. Veterans and poverty and mental illness. And there's just so much that needs help. So I just came down here and I'm like, I'm a filmmaker. Like, what a great way to spend, you know, use your film school experience. And now I'm completely convinced we're going to go no kill. That's my new goal. It's not even a lofty goal. We're just at 10% now. If we can just band together and work hard, I think we can make LA city shelter system no kill. I'm Andrew Brown and I'm a volunteer. He used to be vice president of features casting at Paramount Pictures. And he has given up that life because what we do here is just so much better, right? Well, I gave up that life because I lost the job, (laughs) but then I found this and I like this better. This shelter for our dogs, we have very good adoption rates, and you can certainly check the LA Animal Services website for the specific statistics. But on average, it's somewhere from like 85 to 90% live release rate. Cats, it's not nearly as high. So we still have a long way to go to go no kill in terms of the cat population, and other shelters are not necessarily having the same live release rates that we are, so it's a huge community problem still. So I usually do, I'm gonna give you a little bag of treats. Let's start here, because there's some cuties here. Baby. So here's their card, so when there's a yellow mark, it's a big yellow bark, that means they bite, but uh, it could mean anything. I took out once 20 of these yellow mark dogs to photograph them, and there was not a single incident. We're looking basically at the kennel where the dogs are, and there are cards with pictures of each dog that's in the kennel, and there's a little mark that's yellow, and it's a behavior mark, basically. It's, yeah, it's, so it, it warns us, like, don't put your fingers in. So for you and I today, when we're going to do a tour, it's a little warning. The yellow mark simply means that somebody has witnessed or claimed that there was a behavioral issue. Could have been the owner who brought the dog in, could have been somebody who found the dog and turned it in, could have been a staff member here. Now, sometimes that means the dog was just having a bad day. So we have to mark it just to kind of protect everybody and make sure that they're cautious. But I always encourage people, if they're interested in a dog, just because it has a behavioral mark, don't give up on it. We had a dog recently. He got rescued yesterday by a rescue group. And for six weeks, his kennel card had the behavioral mark, and it said dog aggressive. That note came from the owner who turned it in. They said he attacks male dogs. Well. After working with the dog for a little while, he did not seem dog aggressive to me. So we started exploring it and introducing him to dogs and got to the point where we had him in play group, running off leash in the yard, playing great with every single dog he met. And the dog was by no means dog aggressive. So after that, we got the words taken off, but you can never take off the behavioral mark. 
So the moral of that story is if there's a dog that's sort of captured your heart, investigate, ask. Meet the dog for yourself, see how the dog acts with you, because that's what matters. The most important thing here is that this is the degree to which the volunteers at the shelter and the staff go to work with the animals. Because you can see even on that yellow mark, it says scared. So what that tells us is this dog is fine, but be careful because if it gets scared, it might nip you. And it's a tiny dog. But this is the degree that volunteers will go through to get a dog help and get rescued. While we were just having this conversation, a big, sort of a pit bull mix or someone sort of jumped up to hug me. Look at that looks like a mastiff. So who's mastiff, this yeah. This is Boyo. He is an owner surrender. He's about eight years old. Boyo. You can obviously see from the calluses on him over his body, he was not well cared for, probably neglected a lot. But he is the sweetest, gentlest dog. Come here, Boyo. Boyo. Come here, Boyo. He's a hugger. Oh, he totally is a hugger. A big old lap dog. <laughs> okay, I'm watching the hug uh, yeah. happening now. Shameful hug. Yeah. And yeah, and he's got he's got some fresh marks on his face. Yeah. You can tell he's had a hard time of it. What always gets me, you guys know this more than anyone, that they've been through everything and Boyo is right now just giving oh. Andrew a big bath. So if someone comes in, they're looking for a dog or a cat, they have some very clear needs or desires you guys know these critters by the time they're coming in and looking for a family member would that be true i would say that's true of me to whatever degree i'm able to at any given time we have anywhere from like 200 to 300 dogs here and sometimes over 100 cats so it's impossible to know them all there's no guarantees but if people come in and know what they're looking for and give me a list of criteria i can probably be an asset in terms of finding a good match for them but a lot of times people think they want something and then they start meeting animals and you find out that that's not really what they want they really want something else so it's great to meet any dog or cat that catches your eye and try to figure it out see who you fall for is that sort of part of your job too to make sure that they're kind of being realistic about what will be a good fit for them? Well, ultimately they get to make the decision. I can't stop somebody from adopting an animal even if I think it's the wrong choice. All I can do is give them the information that will help them to make a better choice. And we're a city shelter, so unlike a rescue, people just come in and adopt. We don't screen them. So anybody can walk off the street and take an animal home if they pay the adoption fee. Rescues tend to screen their adopters, but here, we this is actually as nice as it looks. This is a government city organization that your taxpayers pay for. You know, it's animal control. So it's just an added perk that we have all these wonderful programs and then we're doing all this stuff. And the shelter, as you can see, looks great, right? It's not... It's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's... So here's some cats. Oh, because I'm a lesbian. Cats in the summer. Uh, I looked up the stats for this shelter, and in August we got 600 cats. When we were looking for our girl, it, the hardest thing was to say no. We had to walk away from four other cats that fit the bill. And so many adopters torture themselves looking for the perfect animal, and there's no such thing. And I always tell them, any one of the animals that you're considering you're going to be mostly happy with and there's going to be a few things that bug you about them. Just know that's going to be the case. Pull the trigger, pick one, and chances are you'll be really happy with your choice. We were not looking for an adult cat because we thought a kitten would fit into our family better when we had our name down for a kitten that we saw we were going to name him Tyrone. And when we arrived, the date that we were supposed to pick him up, there was a little clerical error and there was a gay male couple also who had their name down on Tyrone. And I said to my partner, we are leaving with a cat. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs>
We are not, even though we will give them Tyrone, I think they were afraid when they saw two lesbians that they were going to have to wrestle us for it. We let them have Tyrone. That was at this shelter in this room. Having your name down on an animal doesn't actually mean anything. Mm -hmm. Nobody is able to put a hold on an animal. We learned that. Anybody who shows up, once they're available, has equal shot at getting that animal. If there's more than one person, they do it. And that was going to be the next step. And we thought, you know what was better is let these guys have this kitten who they obviously adored. And Mm -hmm. we ended up getting, as you said, not the cat that we were looking for, but the perfect cat for us in the end. And I feel you did the right thing. I personally would never auction for an animal because I know that I'm going to love another one as well. Oh, hi, Butch. So Butch is special. Come here, baby. Butch has been here since August. Butch had cancer. He's a kind of pit bull. I see he's putting on weight. Come on, Butchie. Yes, well, he's wiggling. Nobody wants him. Oh, I don't know why. Hi, buddy. Treats? I love Butch, and I don't know why. Each of the volunteers here, we become an advocate for somebody. So we'll take photos. We'll put them on the Internet. We'll spread them far and wide and let people get to know them. And I only found out a month later, I'm like, why do I bond with this dog? We're not particularly buddies, you know? But I was like, why am I bonding with this dog? And a couple weeks later, they biopsied the little bumps he had, and he had cancer, and I have cancer. So this was meant to be that I was to help Butch. Now, he was very lucky because they not only did surgery on him here, but he is now cancer-free. We are one of our local Girl Scout troops. They came in and virtually sponsored Butch and another dog, Daisy. So when they're out selling Girl Scout cookies, they're also sharing a flyer of Butch. So when you talk about community groups working together, come here, Swoopy. But he's one of my little guys. Hi, Sassafras. Look how gorgeous Sassafras is. Hi, baby. This is one of Sherry's favorites. I know a lot about these dogs because the volunteers will take pictures and videos and tell their story and put it on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. Here, it's kind of hard to differentiate. But when people write stories and show pictures, that's the other thing. Recently, we've really put our all behind our foster program. So we have about 50 active foster homes in the community. And what they'll do is they'll come take a dog out for like a month, from a weekend to a month. Like you could come in if you wanted to foster and take a dog. Like we know on the 4th of July, because of fireworks, dogs run out and we get every year 50 to 60 dogs in over the weekend of the 4th of July, the minute fireworks start. It's just a statistic. So this year when we knew it was coming, we decided to do a huge push on the internet for fosters. And you can call us naive, young, idealistic kids, all of us here, but we were like, they can't kill them if they're not in the shelter, right? Let's get every dog out. The New Hope coordinator who came up with the idea was like, we have the foster program, right? So we put a call on Facebook. We didn't even put it anywhere else yet. And we got people driving up from San Diego. We got every single dog that could leave, that was able to be fostered, out. And of all the city shelters, which there are five, our shelter had no euthanizations that weekend due to overpopulation. Are you doing that again this year? Not only are we doing it again, they were so impressed with what our new Hope coordinator did. They're now making it a policy at all the shelters. So this year, when the 4th of July comes around, every city shelter will be doing, we call it four days for life.
That's the power of people and what people can do. The reason we're having such a great rate here lately is now we have fosters from that. So they'll foster for a month, the dog gets adopted, then they take a break, then they, oh, let's go in and foster a dog. I mean, what a great lifestyle choice to make. We're gonna be foster parents. We're just gonna incorporate this into who we are. And for us, talk about being moved to tears. When they send me these photos and it's like, oh, here's the dog that was in a cage for weeks and now he's sitting at an outdoor cafe having cappuccino with you and he's on a bed. And then they give us these photos, they give us these biographies and immediately the rescues come in and the adopters come in and they get out. And it's just like you can foster for a weekend. So we have an intervention program. So when people come in and they can't afford to keep their dogs because of money or the medical bills are rising, we send them over instead of, this is to curb the owner surrenders because we do have quite a few owner surrenders. They have low cost vets, free food. When they come to owner surrenders, we'll try to bring them here first. If it's something we can help with, we'll help. Some they can also help with redemptions. If somebody finds their dog here, it escaped and ends up here, but they can't afford the cost to get it back out. The intervention program will often help them get their dog back. Which is huge. And one of the nicest things that they do is if people have a dog that's suffering, that's old or sick or something and suffering, and needs to be put down, typically they would bring it here and surrender it, but then the dog has to sit and suffer for at least Five a certain amount of days before Alone. we can euthanize it, yes. and then it gets euthanized without its loved ones there. The intervention program will give them vouchers to have it done without paying anything. At a vet. At a vet, so that they can bring their dog in and be with it. Does it get to you? People always ask, oh, how can you volunteer? Isn't it so sad? And I always tell them, the good news far outweighs the bad news, at least at this shelter. Not every shelter has the kind of successes that we have here at East Valley, but I feel that if we didn't have more good than bad, I probably couldn't do it. If I didn't feel that the people who work here and run this place were committed to doing the very best job they could and to helping as many animals as they could, I don't think I could do this. But I firmly believe that they do not want to kill any more animals than they have to, that real thought and consideration goes into every choice that they make and that they're really doing their best. So because of that, I'm able to suck up the bad that happens and really relish the good. But certainly you are seeing a lot of every day. You can't just avoid the fact that people are abandoning their animals and there is cruelty and misunderstanding. Oh, yeah. What I notice of the volunteers is that is how we handle the, the cruelty when they come in. It's, it's mostly the staff here. If you call here and they might be a little short, it's one because they're busy and one because you can't imagine what people say to the staff and the questions and the the other day like for example just today they told me somebody came in the other day they looked at a dog they were already adopt and they're like oh we got to pay we thought it was free forget it mm -hmm. and left i mean that's silly but and then the, the horrible abuse case that came in at the end of the day yesterday that shook everyone to their core because you know you just don't know how bad it can be what people can let happen to their dog they said as per usual the person's like oh i just found this dog like they pretend it's not their dog well at least they brought it here and they didn't dump it which, you know, half the strays we pick up here, somebody dumped somewhere, especially when they come in and they're a stray and they know sit. Pretty much every stray dog here had a home. Yeah. We don't have feral dog colonies in this area, and most of them have not been on the street for long. Dogs do not do well on the street long term, and if they come in and they are not, like, emaciated and completely banged and scraped up, they probably have only been out on the street for a few days to a week, maybe. I'm uh, Jake Miller, I'm an animal care technician with the City of Los Angeles, yes. And Jake and I do, we task ourselves once a month to photograph as many animals as possible. So I'll be in the room and we'll get a studio light set up and Jake 
loves them and calms them down and puts them in a good mode. It's hard to photograph them because they're they're scared, you know, a lot of the time. If you if you ask a shelter worker about what we do here and how we view our job, it's a very unusual job. We do a lot of talking about how, you know, this is a really great place and yeah, it, it's a shame that the animals show up here. But even then, when you work here and you see this and you deal with people that are bringing in animals, whether it's theirs or not, the important thing to remember is that we're here because the public wants us. That's why we're a municipal animal shelter. We're here by ordinance, so every year we're voted back in by the city council and we continue to get our funds through the city taxes. So when animals brought here, we don't fault anybody for bringing an animal here because that's what we are here for. Nine times out of ten they're probably coming into a better situation or you're in a situation where you need to keep the roof over the family's head and life happens and that's why we have animal shelters as well. So I try to focus on the positive side and I just ask that I never and my co-workers would never demonize somebody for leaving a pet here. We just want them to tell us what exactly is going on to be honest with us because if they withhold information about it being their pet and say no it's not mine because they're feeling guilty or whatever, it means that we have to hold on to that animal to wait for an owner that's not going to come, which then diminishes its chances of getting adopted. So it's very important that people are just honest and upfront with us because we can find homes. People are scared to come to the shelter, they think it's sad. And I always tell people the most beautiful examples of humanity, like sweetness, kindness, that which is the best in us, I have seen at this shelter. What we're doing here is spreading. Other shelters are picking up some of the ideas, that Four Days for Life program that we talked about with the Fosters on the 4th of July. It's not just the other LA Animal Services shelters that took notice. Shelters across the country did. It became a huge um, viral sensation, and people saw how effective it was, and they're picking up the ideas. We pick up ideas of things that work in other places. So the more people talk about it, the more they become aware of what's going on, the more they can help and make a difference. What kind of things can people do? Like, they may not have time to volunteer, they may not have money to give, or they have a little bit of time to volunteer. What are the options for them? Oh my God. (laughs) The number one thing that everyone can do is share a photo or video on social media. You know, if everyone that hears this right now goes home, comes to our Facebook page, Friends of East Valley, Friends of East Valley, and shares one photo they see there, you will save a life. I told you the story of that old, old dog that was owner surrendered. The woman that came in and adopted that dog was from a photo share. We took a photo, one person posted it, another person shared it, and the woman that came to save that dog saw the second share. That's true of almost everything here. Four Days for Life was completely done on the internet. And you don't have to come in and foster, but if you share that photo, your 200 friends, your 2,000 friends are gonna see that. And that's how we get dogs out. I fell in love with a dog in here, damn chihuahua. And I couldn't get her out of my mind. And every day I put her photo on the internet and somebody shared and somebody shared and somebody shared and a nice man came and adopted her and now she's got a better house than me. I'm not bitter. (laughs) But he sent me a photo and it's like this big gorgeous pool in this huge backyard and I'm like, damn, adopt me. But for one dog to get out of here, sometimes it takes up to seven or eight people. You know, the person that walks it, that cleans it, that loves it, the person that takes the photo that puts it on the internet, that shares it, and then for them to reach the place where they'll be adopted. Talk about a group effort. We can't do this by ourselves, but it's amazing what can be done. That zero euthanization over the 4th of July, that was astounding. But it was nice because it's like, oh, these are all the nice people in LA. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride. And Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook 
at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by the station. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. And IMRU gives a special shout-out to Rachel Maddow's wife, Susan McCula, who is recovering from COVID-19. And the best of wishes to all our listeners for a happy holiday. Good night. Happy Thanksgiving. This grudge can't last forever. Snow my land. So eat some turkey while it's still warm. Snow my land. Cause I've been here a while and you've been here a while. And together we can live in peace. So let's forget the past and all have a laugh while I chop down the rest of your trees. You stole my land. Greedy evil man. Yourself is Stuffing and cranberries inside Still my land We'll share this smorgasbord together Still my land I bet we both like pumpkin pie no. You came to the west with your germs and your death Brutalizing every woman and man Killed everyone in sight Cause you thought it's alright Now you're doing the same to this land You stole Selfish plan Killing anyone who's tanned You stole my land Destroyed the trees and the sea and the sand You just stole, stole my land stole, stole, stole my land You stole my land We can dwell on the past and we can fight now fight Or we can now. shake hands and be friends right now right You now. can talk about the cause of your stole plight now plight Or sit down next to me and have a bite now bite We would have told you but you killed us, we're gone now what you're doing to this land, it won't be won't long be now. Long Destroy now. the gold.